The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is James Meadway. We talked about a forthcoming article of his on the end of neoliberalism, which will appear in Open Democracy. We talked about why James believes that we're witnessing a transition away from neoliberalism and towards what some are calling authoritarian capitalism, why the left needs to focus more on the high point of globalisation of the early 2000s when thinking about neoliberal forms of governance rather than the late 1970s and 1980s. And we also talked about how the platform giants such as Amazon, Facebook and Google may have been nurtured within the neoliberal system, but their revenue models point to a quite different regime of capital accumulation. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Haymarket Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Palestine, a Socialist Introduction, edited by Samaya Awad and Brian Bean. In response to Israel's brutal assault on Gaza earlier this year, we saw thousands mobilise around the globe to protest in solidarity with Palestine. The growth of this movement must be seen as part of a broader radicalisation against systems of oppression, inequality, racism and for refugee rights. Why should Palestine hold a central place in socialist organising and what is the role of socialism in the struggle for Palestine? In Palestine, a socialist introduction, edited by Samaya Awad and Brian Bean, Contributors explore these questions through an internationalist, anti-imperialist lens and examine the history and contemporary trajectory of the Palestine solidarity movement in the process. Palestine, a socialist introduction, is out now from Haymarket Books and UK readers can buy the book from bookshop.org. And now to today's interview. James Meadway is an economist and director of the Progressive Economy Forum, a former advisor to the then Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell, His writing has appeared in The Guardian, The New Statesman, Tribune magazine, and Open Democracy, amongst other venues. If you'd like to hear the extended hour-length version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. So in your article for Open Democracy, you argue that neoliberalism is dying and that we're seeing a transition to what some are terming authoritarian capitalism. Of course, neoliberalism is itself very much a contested term. And in the article, you argue that the left tends to mischaracterise neoliberalism by centering its focus on what you ironically refer to as, as neoliberalism's heroic years, the time when Thatcher and, and the Reagan government were taking on and defeating the unions. And that to really understand neoliberalism, we need to think more about the high point of globalisation of, of the 1990s and the early 2000s. So before we get into what neoliberalism might be superseded by, can you say something on what we miss by focusing too keenly on that earlier, more kind of combative era? 
There's two parts to that, and I think Quinn Slobodian's uh, a very good, very interesting article in, in Tribune about a month ago kind of lays out the case for a great deal of continuity between what he calls a sort of populist right, the, the nationalist right today, and neoliberal thinkers in the past. And this is thinking about neoliberalism as itself as primarily an ideology, a set of ideas that, that arise and tells government what, what to do, rather than uh, what I think we do need to think about it as a sort of set, set of practices. In other words, it's things that governments do once they've kind of defeated the miners in the case of Britain and, and many other opponents, internal and external to the Conservative Party under Margaret Thatcher. So in other words, it's it's the things that governments end up doing and the, the sets of institutions they have that work in this way rather than the ideology of neoliberalism. And, and I think it's important to do that because otherwise you end up with a, a version of history which, I mean, I, I mentioned Will Davis pointing this out probably last year, but you end up with a version of history where it's sort of, you have the post-war period where everything the world was just run in one way and we had lots of government intervention and strong trade unions and then Margaret Thatcher wins the 1979 election and that's all kind of wiped away in fairly short order. Rather than thinking about the construction of neoliberalism as yes, partly because there are actual ideologues like Friedrich von Hayek or Milton Friedman saying this is what you need to do, but also a sort of opportunism around what governments thought they were doing. You know, Thatcher's government in 1979 does not arrive promising a, a neoliberal future, not one that we'd recognise. Thatcher does not arrive saying I'm going to decimate manufacturing industry and create a kind of financialised service-based economy where everybody's massively in debt. She promises the virtues of thrift and, and says that we are, she wants a, you know, Britain to be the workshop of the world again. She doesn't get any of these things. Neoliberalism as it is built is different to what governments that started doing it really wanted to get to. And it's, and it's different really to, to what its ideologues wanted. There isn't a, there isn't a kind of a government anywhere that really just read you know, von Hayek's Constitution of Liberty and said, okie dokie, we'll do that. I mean, it's, it's put together in a more complex fashion. Something that, that, that Slobodian and, and others point out, but if you intellectualise all of this, and if you start to say, okay, it's actually, what are the ideas at the people at the top and how do they put them together? And, and this sort of, the way to think about neoliberalism is a set of ideas that say you've got to take on your enemies and defeat them, rather than the way to think about neoliberalism is that this is a sort of automatic functioning of the system once the enemies have been largely defeated then what we're looking at now, we'll, we'll kind of we'll start to mistake what's happening now, which is that those institutions aren't working in the way that they used to. And instead, you'd spend your time trying to look for what is the ideological content. Uh, what are the changes in the ideas of the ruling class that are changing how the world operates? And, and you'd miss great chunks, I think, of, of what's, what's been happening both in how the economy is organised, how, how corporations are organised, how they make profits, how the institutions of the global economy in particular are organised and then actions by very specific governments around the world, of which China is, is the most important. That, you know, and I say this in the article, but it's, it's, it's competition from China that is a real driving factor behind the deliberate moves out of neoliberalism by, by various governments across the world. On the point about populists and how right-wing nationalists conceive of themselves, so, so would you say that although many of those people, whether it's the Brexiteers or the alternative for Deutschland in Germany or, or, or Trump, Although they may regard themselves as neoliberals and, and even be, you know, sort of card-carrying Hayekians, that what their projects are are about are definitively post-neoliberal in terms of the kind of regime of accumulation that they would be pointing towards. I think so, because I think the, the, the critical bit about what is neoliberalism is that in the first instance, it is what is the international economy organised like? You know, if you, you take the sort of high period of classical liberalism, all the way up to 1914, the, the international economy is basically organised around what the British Empire is doing and, and, and the presence of, of the gold standard. 
and this is this is how the thing is ordered and this structures what the rest of the global economy looks like we want to understand any part of that global economy any the way any country or economy is operating within that you start from the picture of how is capital capitalism organizing itself at a, at a global level and there have been sort of permutations of how that happens for, for a long period of time capitalism goes through rounds of different ways of organizing itself uh, internationally this is uh, Arigi's, Giovanni uh, Arigi's argument from you know, 20, 25 years ago, that there are regimes of this sort of international order. Uh, Kindleberger, Charles Kindleberger makes a, makes a similar kind of argument. So you start from this, and what you get by, you know, as I say, I think the, the high point of neoliberalism you know, wasn't its combative period when, when it was still being fought, when this thing was still being put together. You know, it wasn't Margaret Thatcher defeating the NUM in 1984-85. It was China's entry to the World Trade Organization because this is what solidifies this huge neoliberal institution on a global basis with you know, what is now, wasn't then, but is now the world's second largest economy. So that, that's a, a critical moment. And that's the international regime that you, you have to start from. Now, that regime is constructed from a series of domestic decisions, for sure, but it's put together by 2000 and, and holds in place really up until 2007 or so. That's the bit that's broken down most obviously. That's the bit that, that fell apart in a, in a material basis in, in 2007-8 with the global financial crisis, that there was a huge sort of involution of the, of the global financial system, a retreat of money back to its national borders, the, the massive intervention by various governments all around the world, principally North America and, and Western Europe, but really all around the world to try and support their banking systems. You know, it's this sudden arrival of government in, in a a really deliberate, active way, in a way that neoliberalism was supposed to exclude. And then the consequences from that are the, the sort of international order that comes out the other side looks rather different. Cross-border financial flows are way down on what they were in 2007-8. In other words, there's less capital moving around the world than there was in, 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 at the high point of this sort of neoliberal globalisation. World trade crashes in 2007-8 doesn't really recover as a, as a share of the global economy. It's much, much smaller now. These bits that make that international economy work in a material sense look different. And then the international regime starts to function differently. And, and it's been deliberate actions by government that have, that have pushed that through. Uh, the most striking one, I suppose, is, is, or in some ways the most striking one, is, is Trump's pulling the plug on the World Trade Organization's uh, adjudication court. In other words, this sort of quasi-judicial, you know, sort of thoroughly judicial role that the World Trade Organization had to arbitrate in disputes over the applications of neoliberal rules. Trump just pulls a plug on. And there's no sign of Biden going back to this, because you know, this is a, a key moment in the, in the disintegration of the, the neoliberal international order. It's also backed up, of course, by what governments start to do inside their borders, which is, again, I think, with China as, as the leading pressure in making this happen, which is to try and organise themselves to intervene deliberately and strategically in favour of particular companies or industries or sectors in a way that neoliberalism would always say, you do not do this, that the, the functioning of the market must be automatic and government must be outside this. So that's happening at the domestic level. All of this, by the way, and, and it's worth stressing this point, all of this is happening without really the, the left having much say in it. It's not because there's pressure from the socialist movement or trade unions or whatever that this is happening. And this is why the, the Biden administration is so confounding in a way, because we didn't expect anything because of the absence of, of a stronger left, I suppose. I think the, the, the left has had a, a clear impact on what American politics looks like in the last sort of five years or so. The, the, the two Bernie Sanders campaigns are, are one part of that. Black Lives Matter is another one. There's, there's a number of things that come together to shift the Democrat Party to the left. And to do so, and you can see in the Biden administration's plans to do so, is, is at least partly restoring legitimacy to the, you know, the US political system, the US economic system. 
and to do so on the basis of a, a fairly familiar set of social democratic demands around, you know, you'll have a good job, it will be unionised, you'll be well paid on one side. And then, of course, on the other hand, and this is the other part of the anti-neoliberal push, is to say, OK, China's a peer competitor now. This is the, the language used in Washington. We have to change how our economy operates in order to take on China. The high point of neoliberalism, of globalisation in the 2000s, America is basically always dominant. Now you have a, a very large economy, which is able to start to gain, really gain a technological achievement, which is something, you know, that, that America has had across the range of different industries and technologies for a very long period of time, that there are Chinese companies that are starting to gain the technological edge in what, what American companies are doing. Uh, Huawei is the most obvious example of this. Huawei can supply 5G equipment cheap and reliable in a way better than, than you know, any other company on the planet. So it's at the cutting edge of what's happening there. It's at the cutting edge because it's been in receipt of massive subsidies from the Chinese state. So, so that's the other bit of this anti-neoliberal drive. It's coming from changes in how the economy operates in the first instance. And then later on, the kind of the politics of it starts to get shaped by what's happening in these countries in terms of their sort of domestic political arguments, which, which I think in the US does involve the significant impact of the left over a period of you know, well, eight years or so. Just going back to the financial crash of 08-09, so a lot of very prominent and, and intelligent people were calling time on, on neoliberalism and a lot of that commentary was then criticised and debunked and it seemed to be in fact the case that neoliberalism in, in many respects was continuing and perhaps even in some respects deepening. But do you think in fact there was actually a lot of truth to what was being said at the time and that it did in fact sound the death knell of neoliberalism? It's just it, you know, it took a long time for that to kind of play out. I think I think that's that's about right. I mean, the, the bit where you'd say that okay, because governments have intervened in the financial markets, this is the end of neoliberalism. Therefore, the entire other structures of everything will also under, unwind automatically. I mean, that's that's what you'd have to say. If you take the view that neoliberalism is not so much the ideology of neoliberalism as it is the institutions of neoliberalism, then you'd have to argue, not only is it going to be an unwinding or, or a government intervention that takes place in the financial markets, you have to say, okay, it's like the World Trade Organization, it's, uh, it's the European Union, it's, it's various other institutions that have a distinctly sort of neoliberal organizational element that, that has to change. So, uh, so I think the mistake there is that, that people made at the time was saying, okay, because governments have intervened, they're breaking with their ideology, therefore this is the end of that ideology. Therefore, that's the end of neoliberalism. Instead, we have to think about what do the institutions do? And the institutional collapse takes a lot longer to work through. I mean, we're still, it's still ongoing. It's not like the thing has completely changed and here we are in a new regime for the world. And, and you know, we, we may not get one. Like an outcome here is, is potentially a world of, of, of decidedly sort of anarchic international competition with two very major economic powers and then a few others scattered around and no systematic orderly way of organizing relations amongst them. I think it'd be a very chaotic world to live in, but, but it's, it's easy to imagine something like that taking shape as, as, as one possible outcome. So in other words, because, you, because I'm suggesting you need a kind of institutional focus, you need to focus on neoliberalism as the stability, not the fight, and not the ideology so much. I mean, the ideology is there, but it's not the determining factor that you, you have to say, okay, one institution getting knocked out does not, like, the rest don't fall like dominoes, that you have to set up other, other institutions, other processes in place for those other things to fall down. So in the article, you, you write that the, the high point of, of globalisation, that that period helped, as you put it, create a certain ideal type of neoliberal business, one that depended critically on both the smooth global operation of the price mechanism and on the legal protections of international commercial law and, and regulations. 
So can you talk about the difference between that ideal type of neoliberal company and also just what were the dominant businesses in the global economy in the early 2000s? Because I think it can be easy to forget sometimes and how that contrasts with the platform giants of today, which you argue are not neoliberal, even if they may have been incubated within the neoliberal system. This is a, a more sort of, I won't call it speculative, but, but I think it's important to try and ground what's happening in, in material changes in what the economy is doing. That, that if, we're, if we're going to say, okay, look, the ideology is important, the, the history of ideas here is interesting and important, it's not decisive about why we're exiting neoliberalism, right? This isn't the, the, the key part here. So, so you have to get back to like, well, what is actually happening in the world economy? And my, my argument is that all the way through to 2007-8, the leading businesses in the world the ones that may not be the largest necessarily, I mean, the largest in what, 2009 or so would be like China's national oil company and, and ExxonMobil. It's the sort of companies that have actually been there for quite some time and they're doing something fairly, fairly obviously extractive, but not necessarily neoliberal. But the companies that, that create the, the cutting edge of economic growth, that have the technology that, that governments look towards, particularly in Britain, as driving economic growth more generally and being the leading edge of, of, of what capitalism is doing, that this is the path to the future for capitalism, as it's seen at the time, are the major major banks, major investment banks in particular. And I say these are these are very, very neoliberal institutions because they, they depend on two things that neoliberalism itself tends to centre on as the most important things that, that can exist, which is you know, a legal structure, the rule of law, and the smooth operation of the price mechanism. That, in other words, that markets operate to clear properly and offer prices for anything that, that exists ultimately. And to understand what an investment bank is doing, it has to rely on some version of the rule of law that defines, firstly, the currencies it uses, secondly, what helps define the currencies it uses, secondly, that defines the sort of legal institution of what a bank looks like, that gives it the regulations it operates within, and that this in turn allows the process of price setting to be rationally executed by banks, that you can create assets legally, this is what they were doing up until the crash, you can take, create these completely wild new financial assets, collateralized debt obligations, you know, the classic, you know, completely crazy thing to be doing, chopping up debt and mashing it all together again and then pretending it's all super safe because you're mixing a bit of government debt. That's a legal operation. And it depends on the legal structure that allows you to do that and the structural regulation that allows you to do that. And then once you can once you have those things in place, you can price the thing rationally and somebody else will buy it off you at a price that everyone understands. This is all very, very neoliberal. This is all like the ultimate expression of what a free market can do. Uh, or a free market capitalism can do, which is create something essentially out of thin air. But because the legal structure is there and the price mechanism is there, it can be traded and the system can grow. And when it collapses, as it was always going to, because this depends on bottomless amounts of debt being created that eventually can't be repaid, that's a trigger for the crisis. Once that collapses, you start to get something else emerging uh, in its place. And, and that's my argument about the, the data giants, which probably Facebook is, is the most obvious example because it's, it's the most kind of immaterial. It's hard to imagine how Facebook could operate in a world without computers. Like you can imagine Amazon could because you could just like write letters to Jeff Bezos and he'd send you something in the post. Right? It wouldn't be a very efficient system, but at least in principle, the thing could exist. Facebook has to exist because there is a sort of mass digital technology that we all have now pretty much all the time. And that's how it generates what it's doing. But in, in, in operating in this way, in using data and the technologies around data collection in particular in this way, they're not relying on a legal structure that can price these things rationally and, and you know, in a sort of formal light, as it's supposed to be neoliberal setting. They're not relying on that legal structure. They're not relying on regulation. They are deliberately moving beyond 
legal structures and regulation to create new facts about the world. And also, they're not actually selling a product direct to consumers. I mean, the sort of obvious thing that Facebook says when you log on to it, it's free and it always will be. Well, they're making their money somewhere else, but they're not making it through like a conventional price mechanism market that they're selling you a product. That isn't what's happening here. I mean, you know, when, when it's, it is Facebook's slogan or was, I think, or no, it was Google. You know, move fast and break things is, is an anti-neoliberal slogan. Right? Neoliberalism is about the legal structure, the formality, the, 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 the fact you're going to obey the law and offer a price. That's what neoliberalism boils down to, not we're going to smash everything up and see if we can make some money out of it. This is, this is working against the structure of the world economy. And, and Facebook has, has been at the leading edge of this. Um, as I say, it's got sort of its own quasi-judicial sort of I mean, PR exercise, but with some real content in setting up this, this court to determine on boundary cases in what you can put on Facebook. It's been attempting to set up its own currency. I mean, these are obvious parts of what sovereignty might look like that move you out of a neoliberal world in which companies would be subordinate to the rule of law and to the price mechanism. And do you think that the neoliberal think tanks and associated intellectuals that exist today, do you think they're quite queasy about the tech giants for, for the reasons you, you describe? I think so. Although they've had a sort of backwards and forwards relationship with them, because on the one hand, this is obviously a wildly successful version of capitalism. And on the other hand, it's like how the tech giants function. It starts to run up against some of what the sort of ideological end of neoliberalism would want to take place. So you can see some of this in it in rows about competition and what to do about breaking up Facebook or not. And by the way, the fact that the US government is finding it hard to win a sort of competition law case against Facebook is another sort of factor that makes you think, okay, we're not really operating in, in a near, or these companies are not operating in a sort of neoliberal way at this point. The, the sort of legal structures that might try and contain them are finding it rather difficult. It doesn't mean they won't do it at some point, that, that you know, an act of, of sovereignty by the US government won't just break up uh, Facebook in some form. But it, it's the fact that it's difficult is, is another, another way of reading this. What it says, of course, that all of these companies grew up under neoliberalism. They're, they're sort of cuckoos inside the thing. And that means they do still have a relationship to, to forms of arguments that are, are clearly sort of ideological and recognisably neoliberal in lots of ways. And, and, you know, top of my head, I couldn't remember, but certainly some of the larger think tanks are, are not averse to taking money off uh, various of the, of the tech companies. But, so they'll construct an argument that uses some of this rhetoric, but their activities on the ground in terms of what they're actually doing, the, the sort of economy they're creating around us, looks very different to sort of the pure form of neoliberalism that we saw in the 2000s. And on China, do you see the Chinese tech giants in similar terms? Because, I mean, obviously China, a very different political and legal system, but do you see a, a kind of mirroring of those different companies? Well, that's exactly it. I mean, it's interesting that, that China is a sort of the test case against neoliberalism or, or becomes that, and it's, it's what China can do when it sort of ignores large chunks of what neoliberalism tells you to do. I mean, it, for, for years, obviously, it's had a, a very heavily state-dominated economy. That's the most obvious with anti-neoliberal bit, but it did join w, the WTO. It did sort of attempt at various points to enforce intellectual property rights, this sort of thing. It has, over the last few years, grown these its own sort of digital giants, you know, Alibaba and, and WeChat and that sort of thing, WePay rather. And these are now running up against the, the, the sovereign power itself, which is trying to sort of discipline these companies and get them to work in line with what you know, the Communist Party's own objectives are for the, for the Chinese economy. This is very obviously not neoliberal. The way they're operating seem to be already breaking out of that. And now you have an alignment between, or an attempted alignment, with some degree you know, of arm twisting and a certain man shoving and pushing from the government to get this to happen, but an alignment between the two that, that, that's taking place. And that's with this sort of 
you know, the long-term strategy that the, the Chinese government sees for how Chinese accumulation is going to proceed over the next few years. That's in the, the digital space. You can see it also. I mentioned Huawei. You, know, you had a, a, a leading, now a globally leading tech company that's just been supported by large amounts of subsidies for a long period of time, quite deliberately, by government to, to drive that forward. You see other aspects where this fusion between state and capital which was always like present in China, becomes more pronounced in leading parts of the economy. In other words, the bits that are growing most rapidly, that are displaying the most sort of technology, technological advance, that are the bits that the government wants to focus on and try and push forwards. You can see that very, very distinctly taking place in China. And it, and it drives a, it's not quite a panic, maybe it is a panic, a sort of a real fear inside the US, although you see the EU using some of the similar rhetoric, inside the US that, that America is going to lose out unless it does something similar. So there's a really sort of big underlying mechanism here, which is common to any form of capitalism we've seen, which is it's the mechanism of competition. And it forces everybody to try and correspond to what everybody else is doing. You end up with a kind of version of symmetry. Because China's doing this and it's working, it starts to force changes in behaviour elsewhere in the world. And that's, that's a competitive mechanism. It's not necessarily price competitive. It's, it can be competitive on the basis of, of tech, for instance, or projections for what tech will be doing in the future. It could be competitive on the basis, and we've seen this in the past, certainly pre-1914, it could be competition on the basis of military competition, fairly directly. It doesn't have to come through the price mechanism. And this is another thing where you think, okay, we're, we're no longer in a world where those rules are, are telling us what to do and we must all trade at a given price and set up level playing fields everywhere. That no longer applies. And it's a competitive drive for the fact you have these competitive relationships between different countries, different companies that, that's bringing that out. Do you think that there are politicians in the US, in the Biden administration, who believe that they're being forced to do things they wouldn't ordinarily like to do? And, and part of that is this competition with China, and that they may believe that at some point they will be able to discipline or, or, or achieve some kind of victory over China, which would bring China back into, back into the fold? Or do you think they really do think that the neoliberal moment at some, at some level is, is just over? I don't know if, if anybody quite articulates it like this, and, and probably you, you wouldn't articulate like that. I mean, the striking thing about neoliberalism, with rare exceptions, is that nobody who is behaving in a neoliberal fashion actually calls themselves this. Uh, I think the IEA, Institute of Economic Affairs, does on occasion, but otherwise it's like it's a thing you accuse people of. As I said, I think it's, it's more property of systems and institutions than, than individual ideology. If you look at what the Biden administration says it's doing, it, it is... Simultaneously saying, okay, like Trump, here is a peer competitor. We're not going to seriously change the, the very aggressive, sort of confrontational, zero-sum game trade wars and trade and tech wars that, that Trump was setting up. That still remains in place. We're going to steer and justify a lot of our domestic program, which is huge amounts of, of, sort of direct investment for the purpose of creating jobs and building a semiconductor industry and, and they keep saying this, taking on competition from China. So they, they're going to build all of this. And then if you, if, you, if you look at what they've said about what they like about the slightly more distant future is that they want a rules-based international order, that they want, they want you know, the countries that are operating in a nice democratic sort of way to all get together and, and create this thing. I mean, that part of it looks almost like the high point of the Cold War or something similar, that you have the Bretton Woods Agreement as regulator for, for Western capitalism, uh, America at its centre, and all these countries agree to be basically somewhat democratic, and that's how the thing works. So, so there's, there's, there's an element of, of that being built into it. The, the wrinkle in this, and the point at which I think some form of cooperation or you know, varying degrees or weakening of competition has appeared at this point in time is, is in, the, in the striking turn towards climate change policy made by the Biden administration, which in turn sets in place a, 
you know, China now ramps up its its claims about how fast it's going to decarbonize its economy. There's this, there's, there's this sort of relationship and international order that starts to develop around climate change policy that is, again, I'd say not neoliberal because it's not really institutional at this point. It's like you know, things are getting bad and there's a recognition of the costs that are involved in this that's starting to appear everywhere. So that's forcing kind of changes. But at that level, there's a degree of sort of verbal cooperation rather than the outright conflict you see appearing uh, elsewhere. Going back to that point you made about the way in which people in the first Thatcher government or the Reagan government didn't really necessarily have a particularly well thought out target state in, in terms of what they were aiming towards, or if they did, it wasn't how things panned out, as you say, in terms of the destruction of British industry in, in, in Britain, for instance. Do you think we're then in a very sort of similar period at the moment where it's very hard to say what will be the post neoliberal settlement, what that might look like in the future? I think that's exactly right. There's a trouble saying, oh, neoliberal, neoliberalism is on its way out. I mean, because we got to the point where everybody at least on the left, recognises this as a bad thing and has, has really, actually, you know, people like John Rintoul or whatever say, oh, it doesn't exist, nobody can define it. Frankly, I think if you talk to most people sort of on the left, it'll have, they'll be able to give you like a few sentences of roughly what neoliberalism is. And we can dispute about whether that's entirely accurate and the history of it and this sort of thing. But everybody will say, yeah, it's like privatisation, free markets, this sort of thing. They'll, they'll get a kind of rough definition of it. The problem with saying it's ending is, is that there's a, there's a sort of happy, optimistic thought that you can get to rather too quickly, which is that, well, that's good because that means we'll get something better in its place rather than, okay, this is happening and the outcomes are undetermined at this point in time. And at least some of them look decisively worse than what we've had under neoliberalism, which, as I said, was always a sort of conditional form of neoliberalism. You had a new Labour government in Britain was very neoliberal and increased public spending. you You get combinations of things. So the fact that this is coming to an end does not mean you get somewhere better out, out the other side. So it's quite important to say that because it's undetermined right now, the politics of what happens really matters. So it's quite important, for instance, if you're looking at the Biden administration, to say that, okay, the steps that it's taken that progressive domestically are good and they should go much further, rather than to say, okay, this is just same old, same old. That, that you want to run the politics in favour of an exit from neoliberalism, in the first instance, this would be like, you know, what does the left strategic aim look like? An exit from neoliberalism that is progressive rather than one that is, is deeply regressive in, in various different ways. I mean, Donald Trump would probably have got himself to an exit from neoliberalism that was deeply regressive in various different ways had he won the, had he won the election. As it is, we've got a sort of Joe Biden exit, so it's a different thing. You talk about China, and of course, what you have is a, is a, a reassertion of state power and, a, and an authoritarian reassertion of that state power, which, as Laurie McFarlane and other people have written about, does bear some resemblances to this fusion of the state and capital across the rest of the world. So, so there's a range of options here. And I think this is where the, the strategy comes in, which is that, okay, if we understand that we are leaving neoliberalism, how that exit happens and what you get to in the first instance is not yet determined. So we have to argue for something that is better than what we have right now. Thinking about the right, so when it comes to the, the intellectual resources that a, a post-neoliberal project of the right might be able to draw on, so obviously the neoliberals had the Mont Pelerin Society, all the notorious associated think tanks, the Adam Smith Institute, the IEA, uh, and all those associated figures, part of what Philip Murawski called the, the neoliberal thought collective. What do you think might be the intellectual resources that could be drawn on by politicians on the right trying to navigate a transition out of, out of neoliberalism? Well, there's some, there's some sort of obviously reactionary ones. I mean, something like Viktor Orban is putting a large amount of money into funding think tanks of uh, various stripes, you know, in Hungary and, and across Europe in terms of 
what that exit might look like. And it's, it's an overtly reactionary one. It's an overtly sort of rationalist, you know, reassertion of national sovereignty on a very tightly defined lines. And, and, and clearly with the government we have here, that is an option and it's like their most likely course that they're going to set themselves on a version of an exit or a movement towards an exit, which is, uh, you know, the, the state will look after a certain set of people, but lots of other people will be not looked after at all. Uh, it will be uh, endless repetitions of, of culture wars and this sort of thing, a reassertion of state sovereignty, a centralization of power in the state, which the Johnson government, for all the talk about levelling up, is is really quite keen on, on making happen. And, and that's the kind of reactionary exit from there. And, and I think that is often framed around a sort of culture wars, pure politics, rather than like, what does the economics of this look like? There are, there are in a sort of more neutral setting, versions of an economic exit from neoliberalism, of which Dominic Cummings occasionally sort of talks about, actually talks about quite a bit, where he says, you know, we need sort of state-directed investment into key sectors. We need to understand, he touches on this, you understand the government budget is not really like the government has a load of money it can spend, that actually governments have a great deal of sort of sovereign power, that they can spend money much more freely than, than we'd normally think. You can find some of the think tanks are, are knocking around ideas and sort of communitarian forms of ownership um, uh, at a sort of lower level uh, in society that you'd have, you know, how do we make our high streets work better, that sort of thing. I mean, there's sets of arguments that the left is also having, but there are people, I think you hear a policy exchange and a few others that are knocking around ideas like that. And then lurking behind it, potentially, I think, there's, there's, a, there's some rows brewing which get you back to like one of the key economic drivers here, which is that space of ethics of AI and ethics of data use, which is a set of questions about what would re- if we could regulate this, if we could write laws, what would it actually start to look like and how would it operate? And, and you can take an utterly libertarian view and just go, whatever, do what you want. You know, we'll, we'll create the, the, the general artificial general intelligence and it will tell us all what to do and, and that'll be that. You know, uh, What's the weird sort of thought experiment? Uh, Roscoe's basilisk isn't it where you know because at some point there'll be a super intelligent computer all of us right now have to act as if it's already there so, so there's crazy sort of libertarian versions of this and then there's the somewhat more serious like actually what, what does it mean uh, to, to have computers that can process like this how do we understand the use of data there's a, a version of that which is very close to neoliberal neoliberal thinking already which is actually data is just a trade a thing to be traded and if you look at what this government's doing in terms of it, how it's setting up its uh, trade deals outside of the European Union. They tend to involve one way or the other, and they're being a bit careful about how they get there, but they tend to involve a weakening of data regulation in Britain and therefore more easy access to that data, specifically things like health data, NHS data is a really valuable one here for international companies. So so that, I think, is is, is probably where a lot of these arguments are going to end up, right? Because it's the, it's, the, it's the cutting edge of what the economy is doing now. And because it's cutting edge of what the economy is doing now, it sets a lead for everything else. So if we want to watch what the right is starting to think, keep an eye on what they're saying about the regulation and control of AI and data, and in particular an argument, a more sort of fundamental argument, of the ethics of, of how any of this should be used. This is a very speculative question, really, but how equipped, and, and I don't want to draw too closely the parallels between the current situation and the transition of the, of the 1970s, but looking at the Conservative government, for instance, how well equipped do you think that they are to transition to some kind of new regime of accumulation? Do you think there are certain politicians who we could think of as neoliberal bitter enders who are just too attached to previous arrangements to get on board with a more state-directed agenda and might be cut adrift in the way that the so-called wets were in Margaret Thatcher's cabinet? I mean, look, there's, there's, it's become a, 
a peculiar argument, but it's the one that we're going to be stuck with for the foreseeable future because it, it runs into what do we do about COVID-19? What do we do about the pandemic? And there's a, there's a sort of very libertarian free market argument, which is roughly like, don't do anything, it'll all sort of wash out. Uh, and that gets entangled with a, a similar view of how society should operate. So, so there's a sort of gang there that are of that view. Sajid Javid? Yeah, well, I mean, he, he is someone who, when he was on the back benches after being shoved out by Dominic Cummings, mostly, uh, of being Chancellor of the Exchequer, he was someone who played up to that wing in the Conservative Party. And, it, and it's, it's a, there's a faction there that is noisy enough to make a difference and to start to determine what government policy looks like. I mean, we'll see what happens with this, this unlocking. It's like none of the public health people, none of the epidemiologists have anything good to say about it. So it's not looking great, but we'll see where we end up, end up with that. I mean, in general, the, the pandemic has accelerated a move out of neoliberalism. It has obviously introduced new features into how the economy operates. I mean, the most obvious one is you know, additional regulations of what Labour does, and therefore a big increase in the costs of a great deal of economic activities one way or the other. But in terms of its political economy and the way that the economy moves, it's, it's accelerated the move out of neoliberalism rather than being the move out of neoliberalism, I'd say, at this point. So that that's that kind of wing of the Conservative Party. What we get at the minute is as much around a person of Boris Johnson, who is, who is a very powerful prime minister. I mean, he's won this thumping great majority, the first real one they've won since, what, 1987 or something, says majority. He has a personal popularity. He has a command over the party, which after he chucked out the various remainers and the rest of it, he has a large sort of dedicated and loyal following there. So a large part of it comes down to Boris Johnson's you know, personal decisions about the world, and a large part of that is a very obvious response to events and to immediate opportunities rather than any long-term plan. And it's, I mean, we'll talk about some long-term thing at some points, but really it's just responding to events. If they're just responding to events, events are going to lead them in an anti-neoliberal direction in one form or another. That, that's where we're going to end up. That's the drive of global capitalism right now, is steering people in that direction. Whether people start to give an ideological form to this almost after the event, I think is a separate question. I've not seen many attempts to do this, although if you read Conservative Home, I mean, people like Ben Houchen, uh, Teesside Mayor, Bernard Jenkins, surprisingly, writing on Conservative Home about you know having the states much more involved in the economy because of COVID and, and longer, then you can see there are people sort of pulling these bits and pieces together. But at this point in time, it really feels like we've got a government determined by short-term opportunities, and therefore it's going to move in that neoliberal direction. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.